when was the last time that you heard a message from the book of Leviticus? Well, today is your day. So open your Bibles, find Leviticus. It's the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's the third book of the Bible. And the title of today's message is Five Love Languages from Leviticus. Now, these aren't Gary Chapman's love languages, okay? Uh, he has those copyrighted, and so we know. These are not those. Uh, my wife got excited when she heard the title. I said, no, I'm not doing that, all right? It's something different. But uh, uh, Leviticus, just by way of introduction, that's the third book of the uh, Old Testament, the Bible. Uh, Leviticus is part of what is referred to uh, in Judaism as the Torah or the Pentateuch, penta meaning five, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the five books you've heard of the Pentagon. Uh, so penta, five, and uh, that's part of the division in the Bible. Uh, you have the law, that's the first five books. Uh, you have history, poetic, prophetic, and then when you come to the New Testament, you have the Gospels, and then you have the epistles or the letters. Leviticus uh, the title in the uh, Greek, uh, Hebrew, it just means God called. Uh, it just, in the Greek, uh, it means uh, uh, pertaining to the Levites. So you kind of get that by the title of the book. The Levites were the priests and the ministers of Israel. And so Leviticus, uh, just to give you a little context, is Leviticus is a directory of worship that God gave for the Jews and uh, while they were in, still in the wilderness, and of course as they expanded that, uh, there were laws that guided them pertaining to their worship, how they would relate to God, how they would relate to one another. God was their king. He was the sovereign. They were under a theocracy. And so how would they relate to one another? And so God had uh, given them these uh, directives in the book of Leviticus, as well as in the other books of the uh, books of Moses or the Torah. Uh, in context, you really need to understand everything in Leviticus. Remember, every part of Scripture is God's Word. Remember Jesus said, not one jot or tittle. Those were just small breath marks of the Hebrew. Uh, he said, shall not pass away till they're all fulfilled. Every, every part of the Word of God uh, is, is uh, God-given and inspired. And so when you come to Leviticus, it's important to kind of set it in its uh, big picture. And it's hard to appreciate and understand Leviticus without understanding that this was in the context of the holiness of God, that God is a holy God, and His people were to exemplify this holiness in how they lived and how they worshipped and how they related to one another. The word holiness is used 85 times in the 27 chapters of the book of Leviticus. So holiness and the holiness of God. The holiness of God undergirded everything that is discussed in the book of Leviticus. When it discusses or talks about the, the uh, sacrificial offerings, the requirements of the priests, uh, dietary laws, there were seven annual feasts of Israel that are spoken of there. And all of those things, laws that would punish the criminal or punish the one that violated God's law, all of those are, are to be understood with the backdrop 
of the holiness of God. We are to reflect, and nothing has changed, we are to reflect the holiness of God. And so remember that God had birthed and was birthing and developing a new nation. Remember back in Genesis chapter 15, God gave that unconditional covenant to Abraham that through his seed that uh, there would be a nation and there would be a people and there would be land. And we understand that as Israel uh, even today. And a nation needs three primary or four primary things to be a nation. It needs one, it needs a king, needs a sovereign, needs a head. Uh, A nation needs land. If they're going to be a nation, they need land. They need uh, subjects in this kingdom, people who are part of this, this domain, and they also need laws that help them to govern themselves. So that just because Leviticus is one of those books that we don't go to a lot, and you know, if we're honest, sometimes we do kind of the skim reading in our Bible reading, and you know, and 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 yet again, I've just found, and I encourage you, take time with some of these things, and that's where sometimes digging and getting some understanding of some of the things that are a little more complex. You know, there's a misconception any time that we look at the Old Testament, especially things like the book of Leviticus or the laws, there is a misperception, and it's been kind of perpetuated throughout the years, that the Old Testament portrays God as a God of wrath, as a God of anger, judgment. And the God presented in the New Testament is a God of love, grace, forgiveness. And that is an erroneous division, all right? That, 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 anybody, anybody that would teach that just shows their ignorance of the Bible. That's a false division. Grace, if you want to know the grace of God, uh, first of all, I, I was going to say the grace of God, in, at least in Scripture, we see that in Genesis 3.15, that in the middle of man's darkest hour of sin, in Genesis 3.15, God promised a, a redeemer. He promised that one who would be born of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. That's grace. That's grace. So we see right there the theme of grace that's woven through the full storyline of the, of the Word of God. Really, you could go back earlier than that when the Bible says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. So God's grace extends into eternity. But that storyline of the Bible, one seamless redemptive story of a holy God who, gave his, uh, who, who so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him will have eternal life. And so as we look at Leviticus, because it were a little, it may be unfamiliar to us, just make sure you put it all in that perspective, and I think it'll be helpful, especially where we're going to go today. Now, before we look at the passage this morning, one of the themes that, as I said, is grace and the love of God that's throughout Scripture, and I was thinking about a time when Jesus was confronted by uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were the religious teachers, the Jewish leaders of his day. And among the Pharisees, there were, were lawyers, and they were experts in the application of the law, and they referred to as lawyers. And in Matthew 22, Jesus was asked by a snarky lawyer who was a Pharisee 
uh, he asked him what the greatest commandment was. I can't remember if this uh, scripture is on the screen or not, Matthew 22, uh, beginning at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, really to trip him up was the motive. Verse 36, he says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. But look at verse 39. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend or hang all of the law and the prophets. Law and the prophets was just shorthand to saying the Old Testament, which was the, word, the scriptures that they had. So Jesus said that we're to love God and we're to love one another. But again, that wasn't something that originated. Even the words of Jesus tells us that didn't originate in the New Testament. That originated in the law. So don't think of the law as something foreign to talking about loving one another, loving our neighbor as ourself. And that takes us to Leviticus chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, it should be easy to find, the third book of the Bible. And in Leviticus verse 18, we're going to go through these scriptures, but we'll just get to the theme, is when he comes to verse 18... The Lord uh, says, and we're going we're to look at scriptures previous to that, but, but notice how this is tucked away here in Leviticus. Now, Jesus, when he quoted that, he was quoting from Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy was, uh, if you remember, when Jesus was in the wilderness in uh, Matthew 4, Luke 4, and he quoted scripture against Satan. All of those quotations are from the book of Deuteronomy. But, but this is still consistent and part of the Word of God, where it says, you shall not take vengeance, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But notice this, here it is, in the law, in the Old Testament, but you shall do what? Love, love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. And this morning, we want to unpack verses 9 through 18 on what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself. Five love languages in Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 18. What you'll notice as we walk through this is that there are five sections in verses 9 through 18. Five sections, and they all signal uh, a concluding phrase to lead us to the next one because each phrase ends where it says, I am the Lord. So where it says, I am the Lord, the next, one, the next principle, and then the next principle. There's five of these tucked away in here. These verses are not love languages that every Christian must speak, but these are love languages that every follower of Jesus, every follower is to live out. And that's what we want to draw some counsel from the Word of God today. But before we do that, let's just pray one more time and ask God's blessing on his word today. Father, we thank you for your holy word that has been preserved for us, for our instruction. 
And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be that which is pleasing and acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. The five love languages from Leviticus. Number one is loving others with our possessions. Loving others with our possessions. Verse 9 through 10. This is the first one. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings. The gleanings is the leftover grain or produce after the reaping of the harvest. That's kind of the leftovers that are uh, lost on the ground. You shall gather the gleanings, the extras, we might say, after your harvest. You shall not do that. Verse 10, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. That signals that's the first love languages, uh, the first love languages that God admonishes us. God has a special concern for the poor and the disadvantaged. Uh, and his people, those who are identified as followers of him, are to share in that same concern. That's part of being reflective of being followers of God. And the more that we know about God, the more that we become like God, that his passion and his interests become our passion and our interests. And so the principle is that God is admonishing his people then and now that we must intentionally and deliberately plan our financial lives, our business, however you want to put that in there is the application, so that we have leftover, so that we have some that is to give to those who are in need. That's a principle individually, but also it's a principle that God was baking in to the very laws of Israel in regards to their business and commerce. Do you see that? And verses 9 through 10, what we see here is by leaving these leftovers, that when you, when you harvest your land, this is an agricultural world, okay? Much different than our world primarily, but we want to, you know, you can make the application fairly simply that when you uh, do this, what are you doing? You're providing for those who are in need, for those who are poor, you're providing them an opportunity to work and to gain from what you have provided. It wasn't, uh, again, it was for God's people to leave a portion in their fields so that the poor and the needy could work and gather it for themselves. But those who were in abundance, those who had much, were to consider not just plundering everything and, and sucking everything dry with no concern for the poor and the needy, but they were to remember those that could benefit by what they left intentionally. They weren't to take every last bit. It's caring for one's neighbor. It's providing an opportunity for the poor to be responsible to work the field with what remained. This is God's plan. Interestingly, this is not a political thing. 
This isn't a party thing. This was something God put in here, concern for the poor and needy, over 4,000 years ago. Hello? All right? So we need to pay attention here. Uh, It is just going back to the uh, principle here that he gives in verse 9 and 10. This shows that I think it's much more beneficial and helpful to someone who has fallen on hard times, who needs uh, a hand up, not versus a hand out, needs a hand up, uh, as sometimes we might have had ourselves, but for them to themselves take responsibility and themselves to work and to gain this what was left over from whoever owned the land. That is much better for a person who's in need than depending on a, and having a dependency on a check from the government. Again, I don't think that's right, left, center, up, down. I think that's just good for human nature. You know, I mean, we raise our children with some of that responsibility, right? And so God is saying, I'm making provision. You should, those of you who have much, you should remember those who are poor and needy and leave a portion of your land so that they will take responsibility and work and they themselves can have the dignity of work and labor and to have this for themselves. You're with me. You see, now, if you've ever uh, read or know about the book of Ruth, this is what's going on in the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, Naomi and her daughter-in-law benefited from this very system here. Boaz obeyed this commandment when Ruth was allowed to glean from the reapers, to glean and, and take what was left over from those who had harvested the crops and the land. So we see that this was beneficial. Jesus taught consistently that his followers should be concerned and have compassion for the poor. In Luke 4.18, this prophecy or this word from Isaiah, Jesus identifies this as his mission statement where he said he got up and opened the scroll in the synagogue and says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Do you remember when Jesus stood in the synagogue and read, read that and identified that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him and he's here to proclaim good news to the poor? Well, the poor, the poorest of poor, is our, is our deficiency of righteousness. We need the provision of Jesus. You can have all the provision financially and food, and if you have a lost soul, what has it gained you to have the whole world and yet do what? Lose your very soul. Jesus also, in a parable of the wedding banquet in Luke 14, verse 13 through 14, he gave this statement in in these, these parables about the wedding feasts and banquet. He says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be what? What does it say? It's not a quiz. You'll be blessed. Even though they can't repay you, you'll be blessed. Why? Because you are to give as God, I think, in his very nature is a giver, right? For God so loved, he gave. We are to be givers. We are to reflect the abundance grace of God. So God's people are to be characterized 
not by greed and hoarding, but we are to be characterized by generosity. We are to be characterized by generosity. Remember the early church in Acts chapter 2? Full of the, and experience the Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we put a lot of emphasis upon sign gifts. But let me tell you another evidence of the Holy Spirit here that we see beginning, let's pick it up in verse 40. And with many other words, Peter, that's who's speaking here, bore witness and continued to exhort them saying to this audience in Acts 2, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. You see that? Only people were baptized received the word. Infants can't do that, by the way. So those who received his word were baptized. That's a public identification with Christ. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls, probably many more than that because typically they only counted the men. Verse 42. Now, full of the Spirit, God's blessing, what is the fruit now? What do we see? They're full of the Spirit. What is the evidence here? Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the Word of God, the fellowship. They went to church. I just had to throw that in there. To the breaking of bread and prayers. In other words, they communed together and all literally fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, through the apostles. Verse 44, look at this. And all who believed were together, there was a unity, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any who had what? Do you see, this wasn't some special program. This was just a part of how we do church. Now, there are some, well, I'll be kind, that somehow they want, they want to use this verse to pull out that the early church, when it says they had all things in common, that the early church, and I'm not making this up, that the early church actually exhibited an early form of communism because they did away with personal possessions and just communed all of their goods. I'm refraining from saying what I think about that, but I'll let you use your sanctified imagination. That does not, that is nothing there, okay? Anybody says that, they have no idea what they're talking about. It just means, look, what all I have, it belongs to God. And if there's something I have, and you need it, and I got it, take it, cheers. Right? Isn't that, isn't that koinonia, fellowship? Isn't that the church? Generosity of giving. And we see this also in Acts 6 when they first big controversy in the church was, remember when they, what was the chaos? was because you had Greek widows that weren't getting their daily allotment of food. They had an entire food distribution program for the poor widows. They weren't, there was no government handouts. The church was taking care of its own and those who had need. But all I want you to pay attention to is that God has a love language 
that we are to show love for him and one another by loving others with our possessions. Secondly, the second love language is in verses 11 through 12. We're to love others with our words. With our words. Verse 11 and 12. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. God's people are to love others, love one another, by doing what? By telling the truth to each other. By being honest in their transactions, being honest in their business. They are not to be cheaters. They are not to be cheaters. You're like, well, of course, but if you've been around a long time, there's people that unfortunately have misused their identity with Christ and have ripped people off, Christians and non-Christians, and they brought shame because of their dishonesty. God's Word says this shouldn't be. If you look down at verses 35 and 36, he reiterates that you shall do no wrong in judgment in measures of length or weight or quantity you shall have just balances, just weights. In other words, you're not, when you're, when you're in, in a commerce, you're not to put your thumb on the scale and have weights and measurements that give you an advantage and take advantage of somebody and rip them off. You know, the Bible has something to say about usury, excessive interest in loaning of money. The Bible's concerned about every facet of our lives. And God's people are to be characterized by honesty, dishonesty in human relationships. God says, does not show love for me, and certainly it doesn't show love for one another. To swear falsely, verse 12, to swear falsely is to disregard God's holy name and profane it to swear falsely. Interesting, uh, I don't have it on the screen. You remember in Psalm 15, it begins by speaking about who shall ascend to your holy hill. And in verse 4 of Psalm 15, it speaks about the person who is honest and pure and they keep their promises even to their own hurt. You ever have somebody make a promise? And then they reneged because they said, oh, I didn't realize that, you know what, I could have sold it to this guy and made more money, so sorry, or whatever the situation. They, they keep their word, even if they take a hit. That's honesty. That's loving others with our words. There's a third love language. Loving others by our actions. Loving others by our actions. Verse 13 and 14. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. Remember it ends in verse 18 about love your neighbors yourself. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker, we would say an employee, shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Man, pay the guy. Pay him. Pay him what you, what you bargained for. And then he says in verse 14, part of our actions in loving others 
It says, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. Sometimes we say fear of God is the awe of God. Well, listen, Pharaoh did not release the Israelites because he was in awe of God. He feared God. Fear is fear. We don't fear God as believers in a terror way, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says. And if you bought that book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, there's a great teaching and understanding of the, the fear of God in there, but that's different time. What is it? It's that God's people should not take advantage of the weak. He's telling his nation, you're to be characterized by holiness and to be reflective in holiness. You are not to take advantage of the weak. There's a prohibition by, look, don't rip off somebody who is a worker and don't insult the physically disabled or disadvantaged. Abusing the deaf and blind or the handicapped, God says don't do that. And why? Because you fear God. These are people created in my image, and you are not to do this. You know, it is really interesting when you look at what history is available in the ancient world and how the ancient world looked upon and how they treated the weak, the handicapped, the blind, however you, you know, how I believe a society can be judged by how it treats the least of these. Again, don't filter this through some political thing. See, that, that's how the enemy wants to distort and pervert truth. It's not political. It's, it's I mean, 4,000 years ago, God was really, he was on people's case about taking care of the poor, the blind, the handicapped, the people that are weak. And he says, my people are to do the same. Now, in Roman culture, where we find the birth of the, uh, or we find, of course, Jesus in the New Testament, it's interesting in how Rome looked and handled the disabled, the handicapped. One uh, writer said that the birth of a disabled child was regarded by the Romans as a great misfortune. A high percentage of disabled children were abandoned outdoors immediately after birth and left to die because many Romans felt it was pointless to prolong lives that could prove to be a practical and financial burden on the rest of the family. Does that sound a little familiar one historian who wrote about the founder of Rome, Rome, Romulus, and that is not from Star Trek, <clears throat> said this about the founder of Rome, Romulus, said this, quote, Romulus, the founder of Rome, demanded, demanded that all the city's residents should raise all their male children and their firstborn of the girls, and not kill any child under three unless the child was disabled. That was the culture just in Rome, having, you know, what it was like in even more primitive times and cultures. You realize the Christians were noted to be those who would rescue these babies that were left on the side of the road to die, put out like trash, which still sadly happens today. 
Now, that's what God, going back to Leviticus, God told his people that they were to have this concern by their actions for the oppressed, for the poor, the handicapped. And sadly, fast forward a thousand years from Leviticus, and we come to the prophet Malachi, who is a prophet back in Judah. Remember, the nation's destroyed. They've all been taken captive into Babylon, or not every, but you know, most of the people. And then they returned for a time with Ezra and Nehemiah to rebuild the temple and to rebuild, you know, the, the place of worship. And there was many that left Babylon and came back. Malachi was a prophet in that time. And it wasn't too long before Israel reverted back to its sinful patterns. And so here the prophet Malachi, a thousand years after God wrote this or said this to his people in Leviticus, listen to these words of indictment that God speaks to his nation concerning their actions in this area. Listen to this. Look at the screen. And it's from the New Living Translation. The prophet of the Lord says this, the word of the Lord. He says, at that time, God's speaking now, I will put you on trial. I will put you on trial. I am eager to witness, God says, against all, what? Sorcerers, adulterers, and liars. And I will speak against those who do what? Cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, and who deprive the foreigners. We call those immigrants today, by the way. Living among you, deprive them of justice. For these people, meaning my people, do not fear me. God says that's an indictment. And don't miss this. Notice how he puts those who rip off and take advantage of workers and take advantage of the widows and orphans and deprive the immigrants living among you of justice. Notice he puts them in the category of devil worshipers and adulterers and liars. Do you see that? And for heaven's sake, don't filter this through some political nonsense. God's people are not dependent. We are not dependent for our marching orders. Who lives in the White House? We are dependent on being followers of the Word of God. 1 John 3.18, well, we're going to be in 1 John in a couple of weeks. 1 John 3.18, dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other, but let us do what? Let us show the truth by our actions. Old Testament, New Testament. It's all God's Word. How do we love God? We love God by our actions. But there's a fourth Love language. Loving others in our judgments. Verse 15 and 16. The word of the Lord says, You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor. 
or defer or favor to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer, a gossiper among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. What God's word is saying is that justice means there should be one standard, one law for everyone and anyone. There's not poor justice and rich justice. There's not white justice and there's not black justice or Hispanic justice or Asian justice. God says there's one justice. And that's what God says, I determine what is just and righteous. Do you see that? There's not different laws for different groups and different people. We are to be under one standard. Unfortunately, we live in a fallen world, and that has failed in just about every culture. But it doesn't mean God's Word has changed. Sometimes, again, a reason I like reading from the New Living Translation or a different translation, and you should, you should use more than one translation because sometimes... Um, it gives you a little nuance and understanding that's helpful. Let me read that again in the New Living Translation. Look what it says. Do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to rich and powerful. That goes both ways. Don't twist it to favor one group, and then don't twist it to favor the other group, being partial. Always judge people fairly. Always judge people fairly. Justice and righteousness, God says, is to be a part of this Israelite legal system. It is what? It is to reflect not the whimsical fads of humans, but it is to be reflective of the God who is sovereign over this nation. Hello? It is to be reflective of God's holiness and His laws and the application of these laws are to be equitable to everyone. No favoritism. Don't favor the poor, don't favor the great, or don't favor the rich or the powerful. It's interesting that the New Testament, again, is very consistent with these truths. James chapter 2. I want to read verse 1, skip down to verse 5. James 2. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others. Verse 5, listen to me. By the way, you know, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, the full child of Mary and Joseph. They had full children after Jesus was born. He was identified as the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And he's writing pastorally when he says, verse 5, he says, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom He promised to those who love Him? But you, He's telling Christians, He's telling the church folks, you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law, as found in the Scriptures. What is the royal law? Love your neighbor as yourself. But look at this, verse 9, but if you favor some people over others, 
you are committing a what? You are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. Listen, God's people should be at the forefront of God's justice and righteousness. We should be the leaders. We should be the loudest and strongest voice for genuine justice. But see, we can't even hardly say that word because people filter it through unbiblical means in our culture today. Listen, God God has the franchise on justice. He owns that word long before people have misused it and mischaracterized it. And God's church, sadly, sadly, we are not in front. We always seem to be. I shouldn't say always. And by the way, some of the greatest injustice of those who are in need should be those who are unable to speak for themselves, who are not out of the womb, right? You remember Micah 6.8? I love this. It's shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And there's a last love language, verse 17 and 18, loving others in our attitude. The word of the Lord says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly, the ESV says, with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall, and here's how he concludes this section, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The New Living Translation reads it this way, do not do not nurse hatred in your heart. Boy, we can just let that savor over the audience a little bit, right? Remember the Bible says don't let the root of bitterness. You think you're over it? Does something remind you? Has that ever happened to you? Or has it just happened to me? And all of a sudden you realize, ah, that thing still there, right? He says, do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Oh, that's interesting. Confront people, confront people. And again, remember, this is in the context of loving. What does he say? How do you love? You love confronting people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. Look, it's not enough to be polite on the outside and be full of rage on the inside. I don't have this scripture on the screen, but Jesus told us that if you have hatred, he says, you have heard it said, do not kill, do not murder. But he said, but... I say to you, he takes it further. He says, I say to you that if you have, and I'm paraphrasing, if you have anger, hatred in your heart, you've incurred that judgment of murder in God's eyes. 1 John 4.20, very clear, very direct. 
If someone says, I love God, they got Joy FM bumper stickers. They send out little Jesus memes on their Facebook all the time. But if they what? Hate a fellow believer. That person is a, it's a liar. For if we don't love people, we can see how can we love God whom we cannot see. Now verse 17, just to get, make sure you get your money's worth today, says about... Confronting people, or I think the ESV says, uh, reason frankly with your neighbor. The, the New Living says, confront people directly so you won't be held guilty. Uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of teachers and scholars and commentaries, they really are not real clear and helpful on this. But I think there's a principle we can, we can derive from this, is that that means... that as believers, as people who follow God in community, we are connected to one another. And that if there is something that I see of sin in your life, you always have to be careful. I'm not pulling the splinter and i got a log in my own eye. But yet, as Christians in community... We are to love each other by lovingly hold each other to some accountability, right? Right? You know, one of the worst things, this is where I was going with this, one of the worst things that I thought in this context, you remember who Cain and Abel were? Remember those guys? You remember Cain killed Abel because he was angry, jealous, because God accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's offering. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about that snarky little smart aleck comment that Cain gave to Yahweh when Yahweh said, where is your brother? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? That's really bad. What was he saying? I don't know. I could care less. That is not God's way. We are to be our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper. We are to care for one another. Proverbs 27, speaking about the truth, says an open rebuke is better than hidden love. Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. You ever had somebody that loved you enough to tell you the truth? Did it feel good? Probably not. Probably not. And you probably didn't speak to them for a while. How dare they? Do you know what their kids are like? <laughs> right? We get all rattled up. But you know why? You know why I believe we get so? Because anytime God's truth puts his finger on our heart, 
right? You want to know what an idol in your life is? Just have somebody touch it and hear it scream. Why do we react? Because probably they're right. And they love me enough to say, man, you're blowing it here. You're failing here. I don't know if you're aware of it. The, look at that. It says, look at that again. The wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. Jesus said, if someone offends you, someone offends you, I don't mean offends you like the crazy way we say, oh, that offended me. I mean, somebody does something. says, you're to go to them privately. You are to go to them privately, point out the offense. And I love this, Matthew 18, 15. And if the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. It's never retribution. It's always what? Reconciliation. Isn't that the goal? Isn't that the goal? If we genuinely love one another, we've got to reject this isolation and individuality that's so prevalent. God has made us to be connected to one another. You know, in Grace Church, we have three C's. Now, if I really was mean, I'd make, a, make you stand up and say them real quick. First one is celebrate. That's what we do today. We're celebrating Jesus. And the second one, the third one is commit. We're committed to the Great Commission. But what's the second one? Connect. Part of our being reflective of a community that honors and and exalts Jesus is we are to be connected one to another. And you know the thing, and this is no offense anybody watching at home. If you're at home just because you're lazy, shame on you. If you're home because you need to be or whatever reason, that's between you and the Lord. But you know what I hate about this mobile church? It's a myth. There's no such thing. That's an invention of our individualistic, detached world that we lived in. The very nature of the church is a gathered body together. Now, I realize there's some things we've had to do. I get all that. I'm not making a big deal. But I'm just saying this idea that it's you and Jesus, it's me and Jesus and nobody else, that is a false mindset. That is a false mindset. And our culture, where we can have church on YouTube, laying in bed, eating last night's pizza... All right, I did that once. But anyway, <laughs> but it was during the legal pandemic. All right, we weren't doing it. No. That's not church. That's a little food to get through some of this stuff we're doing. But if you're content to just sit and have church of the Internet, you know, there's some ministries that talk about church of the Internet. That is crazy. I'm your Internet pastor. Well, is your internet pastor going to come see you at Lakeland Memorial when you're sick? I guess you can pull him in on the YouTube or Wi-Fi or something, right? You hear what I'm saying? Is that this very thing of being disconnected, 
goes against the grain of what God's Word says, that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. These are God's love languages here in Leviticus for holy living that reflect our holy God that we serve under. And at the end of, these, of the great commandments to love your neighbor as yourself, the commandment that's quoted more often in the New Testament than any other boils down to five real simple propositions, ordinary commands. One, share what you have. Tell the truth. Don't take advantage of the weak. Be fair with others and talk it out. Now that is simple as simple can get. And we get it all complicated. And the wonderful truth is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest demonstration of God's love. Jesus Christ demonstrated the greatest love language not in words alone, but in what he did. Remember John 15, 13, it'll be on the screen. Greater love has no one than this, has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. How did Jesus demonstrate love? He gave his life. He gave his life. What is the example in the New Testament? Under the new covenant, it doesn't point back to the law. The law is not our example. You want to point back to the law for tithing? That's not the way the New Testament did it. New Testament pointed to Jesus. Did he give 10%? No, he gave it all. That's not some snarky way to get your money. I'm just saying, all that we have belongs to him. All that Christ gave. And that's the way we are to be one to another. This same Jesus calls those who know him to show that same love for one another. Jesus said in John 13, John 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus said, so now look at this. Don't, don't check out. So now, Jesus said, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Look at this, verse 35. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're one of me. How will a dying lost world know that we are Jesus' followers when we reflect and act like Jesus'?